Well, let's pray together. Loving God, we thank you for bringing us uh, together here this morning as your people. And thank you um, that we can join in um, from home as well, those of us who are at home. We pray that you would um, be at work powerfully among us by your spirit now, giving us um, a new view of this wonderful reality described in this passage. And so encouraging us uh, to take our place in the body. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder if you followed much of the coverage of the inauguration of Joe Biden during the week, the new American president. Uh, the big theme of the inauguration and the various events that surrounded it was the theme of unity. Uh, so the headline in one paper, Biden pleads for unity in inaugural address to divided nation. Uh, in his address, this is what he said, in, in part. Uh, unity is the path forward. And we must meet this challenge as the United States of America. Unity was even part of the dress code. Biden wore a purple tie. Vice President Kamala Harris um, wore a purple dress. Uh, purple is the colour that you, you get when you mix red and blue, the colour of the um, Republican and Democratic parties. Um, I've got my Unity uh, purple shirt on today. Um, not many of you have joined me, though. Didn't, didn't get the memo. Um, wind back the clock four years, though, and you actually hear similar things being said at the inauguration of Donald Trump. Listen to what he said. When America is united, America is totally unstoppable. Whether we are black or brown or white, we all bleed the same red blood of patriots. We all enjoy the same glorious freedoms and we all the, salute the same great American flag. A little bit more Trumpian, perhaps, the words there. But still, a call for unity. And then go back eight years further still, and Barack Obama said this, On this day we gather because we have chosen hope over fear, unity of purpose over conflict and discord. At another time, Obama famously said, There are no red states or blue states, just the United States. Now, it would be easy for us to hear these calls, these American calls for unity and get a bit cynical. They would say that at an, inaugura at an inauguration, wouldn't they? Um, and perhaps even we might call out their hypocrisy. You know, they said they're about unity, but America's now even more divided than ever. But I think there's a better way to understand the discord between what they say in their speeches and the reality on the ground in the community in America. Yes, divisions seem to have grown, but so deep is the human desire for togetherness in our better moments that the aspiration for unity just can't be killed off. And this is not just the case in America. It's everywhere, this desire for unity. Uh, in Australia, changing the national anthem from young and free to one and free, that's just one recent expression of our desire for this unity. And nor is it just a thing at the level of nations. Uh, we all want unity in our families, uh, don't we? Um, among our colleagues in the workplace. We want it for our kids in the school playground. Well, today in our holiday series, looking at various New Testament passages, um, uh, which have pictures of the church, we've come to the picture of the church as a body. And the big point of this picture is that the local church has the capacity to be a place of rich and enduring unity, unlike any other human group. 
In the church, as we'll see, God is building a masterpiece. And each one of us here has our part to play. Now, the passage we've chosen to focus on today is from 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, we could have chosen uh, any of a number of New Testament passages that have this body metaphor, the big ones uh, being Ephesians 4, Romans 12. Uh, but we're going to focus on this 1 Corinthians passage, and I think it's a very helpful one for us to focus on because the church at Corinth was such a divided church. And so there is great wisdom here um, of what it looks like to apply the gospel to such a divided church. Uh, the church of Corinth was riven by factionalism, cliques, boasting, um, boasting based on things like social class, race, personalities, perceived spiritual prowess. And so how should the realities of the gospel correct a church like that? And how might those same realities help us to become more unified here at Winmalee today. Uh, it'd be good to have your Bibles open as we work through the passage. Obviously, we're not handing out Bibles at the moment here because of COVID. Um, bring them from home and it'd be great to have 1 Corinthians 12 open this morning. Well, the point our passage begins with and repeats several times is that the body, um, the church rather, is one body with many parts. So uh, verse 12, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. Now Christ here being shorthand for the church itself, um, which is the body of Christ. Later on, Paul's explicit about that. Uh, then verse 14, a body is not made up of one part, but of many. And then down in verse 20, as it is, there are many parts, but one body. And then down in verse 27, you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. Now, are you getting a bit of a theme here? Uh, Paul's big emphasis of this passage is to stress both the unity and the diversity of a local church. For it can often be the case that unity can end up meaning uniformity. Solidarity can mean sameness, can't it? You know, if you want to belong here, you've got to dress like us, talk like us, act like us, suppress your personal differences to the point that we all pretty much become clones. But that is not meant to be the case with the local church. In fact, we're not even talking here about a kind of unity that makes allowances for difference. Rather, as we'll see, the picture of the body with all its parts means that the church has the kind of unity that needs all of us in our difference. It needs there to be that difference. Each one of us brings our own particular God-shaped acts of service, just as the different limbs and organs of the body are needed for the body to function healthily. And so having introduced the idea of one body, many parts in verse 12, Paul then shows the reality in which this metaphor is grounded. Verse 13. For we were all baptised by one spirit... Um, actually, the footnote there, if you've got an NIV Bible, the footnote, in one spirit is probably better. It's not the spirit who does the baptising. So I'll start that again. Verse 13. For we were all baptised in one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. So it's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in every Christian believer that is the foundation of our unity. He unites us to one another and he unites us to Christ. 
our unity in the body of believers is first and foremost a work of God, which we then give expression to as we cooperate with him. I think that's what Paul's talking about when he uses that phrase, drinking uh, the one spirit. He's talking about that cooperation. And so this unity is its a very real and it's a very enduring unity. Human attempts to bring unity. You know, we see them all over the place. They all rise and fall with human effort and human achievement. You know, it's why presidents need to keep making rallying calls. And it's why the football team that unites a community, you know how often that's the headline for the successful football team, their uniting of the community uh, requires them to keep on winning games and winning premierships. But when God chooses to unite, in his sovereignty, he will always accomplish what he chooses and the unity he brings is eternal. And so our unity, it's not, it's not dependent on our human achievement. Now what's more, this unity of the spirit overcomes all human boundaries. Now sometimes you hear people talking about Christianity as only a Western thing or a white thing or perhaps Protestant Christianity as only a middle class thing. But we see here that Jesus is meant to be for everyone. Paul in verse 13 draws attention to the different backgrounds of the Corinthian church. Some were Jewish um, ethnically, some were ethnically Greek, some were slaves, others free. But those differences don't uh, preclude anyone from fully participating in the body of Christ. Notice the repetition of the word all in verse 13. We were all baptised, we were all given the one spirit. If you're a Christian, you have the spirit and you're in the body, whether whatever your background might be or whatever your skin colour is. All the barriers that humans build to divide and exclude, they've come down, they've come crashing down in the coming of the spirit. So that's the reality of the church's unity. One body, many parts united to one another um, and to Christ by the spirit. How then... Does that reality help us to actually express unity in a local congregation like this one here? Well, one implication of this bodily unity is that if you start to feel inferior, you know, feeling like, oh, gee, do I really actually belong here? Well, you can know that you don't have to trust your feelings of inferiority. If you trust Christ then you have the spirit. And despite what your feelings say, you really do belong. That's essentially what Paul's saying in verses 15 to 20 with this imagery of the different talking body parts. It's quite comical uh, at some points, but it's also it's quite brilliant and pointed. Uh, read with me from verse 15. Paul writes, Now if the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear shall say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. So Paul pictures here both a foot and an ear, each feeling a little bit inferior and envious, and so they want to give up on being part of the body altogether. You know, perhaps um, the foot's just sick of hearing how smelly it is, uh, or maybe the ear's heard too many times people complimenting the eye for its beauty and is just getting a little bit jealous. But the point is, just because they feel like they don't belong, that doesn't change the reality. They belong. They are part of the body. 
That's the truth of it. Now, I have no doubt that there are many of us here and perhaps uh, watching at home who have had moments like this in church where you look around and it just feels like you don't belong. You know, perhaps you look at the people up front during the service or maybe you look around at the morning tea conversations and, and you get the impression that uh, everyone, is really, everyone else is really well connected to one another. Can I say that if that's you, if you've had those feelings, before you give in and disconnect yourself, first of all, trust Jesus. Trust that you are connected to this body. Don't disengage. Instead, when you feel connected, talk to yourself. Remind yourself of the reality. I am part of this body. Turn and say good day to the person next to you and see where that takes you. Just dive back in on the basis of that solid and very real truth. Or if you've been enjoying church from the comfort of your home um, because it feels like you belong, you know, rather than being at feels like you don't belong, rather than being at home because of any sort of COVID reason, I urge you to get here in person because you are part of the body. But not only do you belong in the body if you are a believer, you also need it in the body. You have something to give. See what Paul writes next in verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? See, a body needs every part to function properly. Eyes and ears. Hands and feet, heart and brain, and so on. Because they all make a unique contribution to what keeps the body functioning. And so, if you're feeling like you don't belong, know that the church, the church actually needs you uh, with, your, with all your uniqueness and with all that you can contribute to the rest of the body. Uh, and that's precisely how God intends it to be. Have a look at what Paul writes next, verse 18. But in fact, uh, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. So don't trust your feelings of inferiority. Trust the work of God, who by his spirit has put you here in this body of believers to make this contribution that he has given you to make. But as well as addressing our feelings of inferiority, the fact that we are all one body also helps us to address our feelings of superiority. In verses 21 to 26, Paul effectively says there is never any reason for members of the body to arrogantly exclude other members. Instead of division and cliques, there should be solidarity with and concern for one another. So this time, as the body parts speak... Uh, Their cry is, I don't need you, verse 21. And it's spoken in both instances by two stronger or more honoured parts of the body and they're addressing it at two parts of the body that they perceive to be weaker body parts. The eye to the hand and the head to the feet. Now the church at Corinth, Paul probably had at least two categories of people in mind here who who practised this kind of exclusion. There's those who were from an elite circle of social status and wealth who rejected um, the idea of mixing with poorer 
low-status members of the church. They excluded them from their um, practice, their celebration of the Lord's Supper, for example. And then there's those who boasted in certain more kind of glamorous spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues, gifts of healing, uh, messages of knowledge that they used to lord it over people and to exclude others. Uh, now, possibly there was some overlap uh, between those two groups. Uh, so they've constructed this pecking order with them at the top and they've done it based entirely on this human perspective, what's appealing and attractive to humans. And the thing is, all churches through history can be guilty of this and we can do it too here at Winmalee 10 o'clock. We can leave people out and cut people off because we've constructed a social pecking order in our minds. You know, perhaps you've ignored someone uh, from church at the shops, you know, who was clearly up for a chat because you calculated that they were lower than you on the social pecking order that you've cooked up in your mind and so they weren't worth spending the time on. Or perhaps there are some other people here at church that you don't speak to because of some social faux pas committed years ago. Well, that's the skewed perspective of human prejudice. And that's what Paul then corrects with the perfect perspective of reality as God has made it. Verse 22. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honourable, we treat with special honour. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. Uh, do you see how he corrects there the perspective of the arrogant? The weaker parts, they seem to be weaker. The less honourable parts are parts that we think less honourable. As in, it's a matter of perception. But the reality is they are actually indispensable and they need to be given special honour. And again, this is the case because this is how God has designed it. Um, see from halfway through verse 24... But God has put the body together, giving greater honour to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with, us, with it. Uh, do you see God's wisdom here in his design? His goal is that in local churches like this one, we would actually express the reality of that one body, spiritual unity, in our sinfulness, our human instinct is always to lean away from that, to lead back towards honouring the impressive and honouring the wealthy, the strong and the intelligent. But that only ends up causing division. No, in the church, God has designed things so that we should honour the weak and the lowly. As we seek to do so, that the possibility of genuine unity arises, suffering together, rejoicing together. Now, the Apostle Paul's personal experience of this is the best example, I think. Earlier in the letter, he writes of his own weakness and dishonour in the eyes of the world, uh, in his homelessness and his um, lack of food, his manual labour. He speaks about how we have become the scum of the earth. That's um, back in chapter 4. And it seems that some of the Christians at Corinth had bought into that evaluation too. Uh, certainly by the time of 2 Corinthians, some of them didn't want to be associated with him because he wasn't very glamorous. But God bestowed great honour on Paul 
using, using him mightily in the building of his church. So the call here is to put away those feelings of superiority. Don't buy into human pecking orders and instead honour and serve one another, especially honour those who some may perceive to be weak or less honourable for whatever reason. No exclusion, no division, equal concern, that's God's design. And so having expressed these two possible pitfalls that can prevent us from expressing our unity, uh, feeling inferior or feeling superior, Paul next reminds us that God has specially equipped each one of us to make our contribution to the body, uh, verses 27 to 31. And what he points to here is some lessons. I've got three lessons in particular for the healthy exercise of diversity within the body of believers. Uh, So in verse 27, Paul reiterates that fundamental idea um, that the Corinthian church, and by extension any local church, is the body of Christ with each um, each member being a part of that body. But then in verse 28, he gives this list of various ways that God has specially equipped the members of the Corinthian church. Uh, He says, uh, And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and different kinds of tongues. Now, as with the other three major gift lists in the New Testament, this is not meant to be an exhaustive, exhaustive list. But it does give us a snapshot of the spectrum of the Holy Spirit's working in the church. And some of the things in verse 28 are people that God has given the church with particular responsibilities that God has prepared them for. Apostles, um, prophets, teachers. Um, Some of them are what we would otherwise call natural abilities that God has given uh, to a person. So um, gifts of helping and that gift of guidance. It's actually um, the word there is the pilot of a ship. Right? So someone who's, who's leading um, and overseeing in that kind of way. Uh, and then some of them are, are more obviously supernatural workings. So uh, gifts of healing, different kinds of tongues. And so one lesson for us here is that we should be wary in defining what we usually call spiritual gifts in too narrow a way. Earlier on in chapter 12, uh, Paul called them manifestations of the spirit. And his point is that God, by his spirit, has sovereignly shaped each one of us so that we can serve in the body. He's given us all different histories and experiences and different capabilities and temperaments that we can all use for the common good. He's given each of us different responsibilities as well that we can all step into because of the opportunities he's given us and how he shaped us. And sometimes this will also include more obviously supernatural events like a healing Sometimes Christians can get really hung up as well on working out which spiritual gifts do I have based on lists like this one. But I think Paul would say to you, just just start serving and trust that God will use you with how he has shaped you so that you can play your part. And the Lord, step step up and step in and the Lord will equip you for what you step into. And the next lesson we learn is that since there is no common gift to all believers... You need others, and others need you. We touched on this earlier, but it's also emphasised by Paul here. Um, Paul asks a series of questions in verses 29 and 30. Are all apostles, are all prophets, and so on? And the way they're framed in the Greek is with no as the expected answer. No, all are not apostles, nor prophets, nor having 
any particular um, uh, one gift that's common to all. And so each of us need each other. We can each look around and say, I need you to be serving me and you need me to be serving you. Don't just leave it to the professionals, so-called, the church staff, um, or even the usual suspects who seem to, be a lot, seem to do a lot at church. God has placed you in this church and he's equipped you. You are needed. It may not be on a formal roster or in a formal team. Um, it might be in your fervent and constant prayer for this congregation, for example. Or might, might be just in the responsibility that you take each week to have a look around for and to welcome newcomers into this congregation. The point is, all of us have our part to play in contributing to the needs of the body. Um, the final lesson we learn is that we should desire the gifts of word ministry. See, some gifts actually are greater than others, and we should desire to exercise them. Have a look at what Paul writes in verse 31. Uh, now eagerly desire the greater gifts. And you might say, huh? I thought we're not meant to have pecking orders anymore. Well, Paul, he's not asking us to have a pecking order here. See, for the Corinthians, he's just totally redefined what the greater gifts are. They thought the more spectacular, supernatural gifts like speaking in tongues and healings were the greatest. And they would boast in these gifts and use them to exclude others. But Paul very intentionally puts those gifts towards the end of his list and intentionally puts those gifts that established and built up the Corinthian church at the start. Apostles, prophets, teachers, these are officers, responsibilities based in declaring God's word. And as Paul goes on to argue in chapter 14, that's what builds up the church. And so while we may not have the office of an apostle around today, uh, and probably not the office of prophet, um, depending on the way you understand Paul is intending it there, the, the lesson for us is clear. Make it a priority to pray for and seek God to shape you and others for this greater gift of word ministry so that you can exercise it. Um, it doesn't have to be up the front proclamation, just in your conversations with one another, encouraging each other with the word as God equips you uh, to do that, to bring the gospel to others for the building up of the church. Well, there's three lessons in the healthy exercise of diversity. Don't define spiritual gifts too narrowly. Uh, you need others and others need you and desire the gifts of word ministry. Well, to conclude, uh, we've seen that the church is one body made up of many parts, all working together. It's a wonderful picture of unity in diversity. Uh, we really do all belong and we really do all have something to contribute. But as you look across the room and as you look into your own heart you might wonder is it all really true things look kind of messy here uh, there can be clicks sometimes we don't honor each other as we should uh, we find opportunities not to serve well things looked messy probably much messier in the church at Corinth too but Paul's assurance was that when they looked around at each other they were actually looking at a great work of God. Indeed, they were looking at God's great masterpiece. For it's God by his spirit who is forming us into one body, Paul says. It's God 
who has placed every part of the body exactly where he wants it to be. God who has put the body together and placed the gifts, Paul writes. He is ultimately the one doing the work here. Yes, the canvas is messy as the artist makes his progress. You, know, you can't quite work out, you know, what's that splotch over there meant to be or, or, or these, these lines, these stripes down here that he's, he's painted. But one day we'll see, oh, that's what that part of the painting was all about. As the wonderful unity in diversity of God's church is revealed for all to see. And in the meantime, our role is simply to trust that he is doing this. He really has united us and given me something to contribute. And so we're to humbly throw ourselves in to serving one another. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the way that you work among us. We thank you that you have drawn each of us together by your spirit to Christ and so to one another, um, specifically here at Winmalee at uh, 10 a.m. Uh, Father, we pray um, that you would help us to have the right perspective rather than uh, trusting uh, our feelings of inferiority or superiority, but see that you actually have joined us together and are building us up uh, into one body. Uh, Father, we pray that you would help each of us um, to, uh, to step in and to, work, um, uh, and to work as you have equipped us to work. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.